to turn to Psalm 22. And I'd like to read it to you again this time in the New American Standard Version. It's entitled, For the Choir Director, Upon Ajaleth Hash Shahar, A Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried out to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. Father, we praise you that you have performed your righteousness on our behalf, that you have sent your Son to be pierced hand and foot 
to have his joints pulled apart, to be mocked, spat upon for us. You have performed it. And what is left for us is to give you praise all the way to the ends of the earth. We pray that you would help us do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. This psalm, as I told you, is entitled A Psalm of David. David is the one who wrote this, of course, and it's clear when you read David's life story in the books of First and Second Samuel that David was writing this psalm from experience. In other words, there were certainly times when David felt as though he had been forsaken by the Lord. Verse 1. Many of the psalms indicate this. Many of the psalms have these same kinds of cries. There were times when David was, verse 6, despised by the people. You think particularly of the time when his son Absalom rebelled against him and gained the people's ears and turned the whole city of Jerusalem against him so that he had to flee and he could say, I'm despised by the people. There were times, as in verses 14 through 16, where David was very near death, particularly as he had to flee for his life from Saul, hiding behind this mountain and in this cave and in this foreign land and so on. So there is definitely an autobiographical element to this Psalm of David, Psalm 22. And that would be a helpful study in its own right, just to walk through Psalm 22 and compare it with the life of David and see how David suffered and learn how he responded in faith in the midst of his suffering. But whether David realized it or not, I think it's clear to us that David wasn't simply writing autobiographically, was he? He was also writing this psalm prophetically. In fact, when we read the psalm carefully, we notice that not all of the facts of Psalm 22 correspond exactly to David's actual experience. For instance, David's bones were never pulled out of joint, as we read here. Even more striking, David's hands and feet were never pierced, as we read here. But even a vague familiarity with the story of Jesus reminds us that there is a connection, though there's not a connection with David and some of these verses, there is an obvious connection with the Lord Jesus, isn't there? Jesus' hands and feet, verse 16, were pierced. Jesus' bones, verse 14, were pulled out of joint as he hung on the cross. Jesus' clothing, verse 18, was divided up by the casting of lots. So, when we read Psalm 22, there, there are a couple of different ways that we can read it. But it's very clear to me, and I hope clear to you, that David, in addition to telling his own story here, whether he realized it or not, was also telling the story of Jesus to us. And so this morning as we look at Psalm 22, we're going to zero in our attention on that aspect of the psalm, the prophetic aspect where we see Christ on the cross in these verses. Jesus confirmed that we should read Psalm 22 this way. In fact, in Matthew 27, as he hung on the cross, he quoted the first half of verse 1, didn't he? From the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of you have heard before, or you may know that in ancient times, the Psalms and the other chapters of the Bible didn't have numbers to them, so 
ancient Hebrews wouldn't have known this as Psalm 22. They would have known the psalm or they would have known the chapter of the Bible or the book of the Bible based on the first line. So the book of Exodus, for instance, in Hebrew and two Hebrews was not known as Exodus, but these are the names because those are the first words of the book. Well, Psalm 22 would have been known as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus cries that out from the cross, not only is he saying it literally to his Father, as we'll see in a moment, but he is also saying to the people, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is happening before your eyes. Think about it. Some of these people would have had it memorized. They would have seen these men dividing his clothing. They would have seen his hands and feet having been pierced. And so Jesus told the people from the cross, when you read Psalm 22, you should see that it's being fulfilled before your eyes this very day. And that's how we want to read it this morning. It is prophetic more than anything else. And I want you just to walk through the psalm with me briefly and notice all the prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. All the prophecies that are made by David and then fulfilled very literally, very obviously, very clearly in Christ. Look at verse 2, first of all. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but you do not hear, or but I have no rest. This is exactly Jesus' experience, isn't it? He cried out by night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this cup from me. And he got no answer. And then by day, the next morning as he hung on the cross, he cried out as we read in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the verse says, he got no answer. He called out by day and he called out by night and he got no answer. And we'll talk in a few moments about why he got no answer. But for now, just notice that verse 2 was fulfilled exactly in the experience of Jesus in the moments before and during his crucifixion. Then notice verse 6. He calls himself a reproach of men and despised by the people. By the people. We often, when we think of the story of Jesus, remember how the rulers, the leaders, despised Jesus. And that was true. But it was also true that the common folks, the people, despised him as well. The same people who had cheered him now despised him and cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! That was the experience of David, but even more so the experience of Jesus. Then in verses 7 and 8, All who see me sneer at me, They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Now, let me just turn over. You can turn if you like, or you can just listen to Luke chapter 23 and hear those words repeated almost verbatim to Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. Luke 23, 38 through 43. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong 
Save yourself. The same thing as we find in Psalm 22. And then over in Matthew 27, we find the same thing as the Pharisees yelled in the face of Jesus. Verse 40 of Matthew 27. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. And here is where they quote almost exactly what we find in Psalm 22. Matthew 27:43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Just what David says. If God delights in him, let God get him down off of that cross. Then verse 12. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Many commentators have pointed out that this verse probably is a prophecy of the kind of men who were in charge that day. It wasn't ultimately the rabble. It wasn't ultimately the common folks who put Jesus up on that cross. Ultimately, it was the well-fed, well-positioned, fat and happy leaders of Rome and Israel. Caiaphas, Herod, Pilate, and the Pharisees. These bulls, these powerful men, well-fed, well-taken care of, protecting their position by encircling Jesus and killing him. Then verse 14 I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. As we're going to see in a few moments, this will be the exact experience of a person hanging on a cross. The weight of their body pulling against their wrists and their elbows and their shoulders and pulling their bones out of joint. And eventually what happens inside the chest cavity is that the heart is so hard pressed that it can just explode and you die that way. Fifteen, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Same thing that happened to Jesus in John 19 when he said, I am thirsty. What a strange thing for someone who's dying to say. Of all the other things that he could have said and did say, I am thirsty. And John tells us the reason he said this was to fulfill the prophecy in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. Verse 16. The end of the verse. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's the most obvious one, isn't it? Of course, anyone could read that and think of Jesus. But I just want to point out to you that crucifixion didn't always happen by piercing of hands and feet. Sometimes they simply tied you to the cross. Their goal was not to kill you by the nails in your hands and the feet. Their goal was for you to hang there and suffer and suffer and suffer until you couldn't breathe anymore. And so sometimes they nailed you to the cross just to be extra mean and sometimes they would tie you to a cross. And here we have not only a crucifixion portrayed but the very kind of crucifixion by nailing. And I would point out to you that this psalm was written 600 years before crucifixion was invented. 
was invented in North Africa by the people of Carthage around 400 B.C. This psalm is written around 1,000 B.C. And yet it prophesies exactly what would happen to a man being crucified. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus' garments were taken off of him. He was stripped bare and all four Gospels tell us that the Roman soldiers threw dice or cast lots to decide who would get the very nice, seamless undergarment that Jesus had on. And now a couple of prophecies toward the end of the psalm that we don't normally notice, but that were fulfilled in Jesus. Verse 25, the end of the verse, I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. That's an odd statement for a man whose hands and feet have been pierced, whose joints are being pulled out of socket, and whose heart is melting like wax, isn't it? I mean, the description in Psalm 22 is of a dying man. And we know that that's true because Jesus actually died and lay in the tomb for three days. And yet here in verse 25, David is prophesying in the place of Jesus, I will pay my vows. It's a prophecy of the resurrection. There are lots of them in the Old Testament. Sometimes folks say, well, is there a resurrection really in the Old Testament? Yes, it is. It's right here. It's also in that great prophecy in Psalm or in Isaiah 53. And then one more prophecy fulfilled, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. All the tribes, all the peoples, all the countries will remember what happened in this psalm. And people will turn to the Lord. And we are a fulfillment of that prophecy this morning as we remember and as we turn our hearts to the Lord 3,000 years after David wrote those words. Now, before we go on, just a, a point of application with all these prophecies. I wonder how many of you have had a school teacher or a professor or a coworker or a classmate or some faceless adversary on an Internet chat room say to you something like this, how can you believe all that stuff? The Bible is literally true. All these miracles are literally true. God really says all that stuff. Don't you realize that there's no evidence for any of these things? That the Bible really is the Word of God? How can you bank your entire life on something that was written 2,000 plus years ago that we have no evidence is true, that seems by all accounts to be historically questionable and which has a message that's really so narrow. There's only one way. How can you believe that? Have you ever had someone talk to you like that? Sometimes you just blow it off, and sometimes it sounds kind of convincing, doesn't it? Sometimes in your heart you may even wrestle with those kinds of questions. Well, what he's saying actually makes a lot of sense. Well, if you ever wrestle, Psalm 22, I hope, is a great bulwark to your faith. A great defense to your faith. This is no ordinary book. Crucifixion prophesied 600 years before it ever was invented. The crucifixion of Jesus prophesied so clearly a thousand years before it happened. The fact that people at the ends of the earth would be worshiping some man who died in the middle of nowhere as a criminal. 
That's an amazing thing in verse 27 for David to proclaim that all the ends of the earth are going to remember this. But they have. And all the other prophecies have been fulfilled as well. This is no ordinary book. But my main goal this morning is not to just look at prophecies and see how they're fulfilled. My main goal is actually to take an even closer look at what actually happened as the prophecies were fulfilled. What actually happened that day in Jerusalem? What happened to Jesus as we find it here in Psalm 22 and as it played out in real time 2,000 years ago? And as I read through Psalm 22, it occurred to me that we can answer that question really under three categories. What happened to him by his enemies, both the leaders who were his enemies and the masses of the people. Think about the masses of the people in verse 6. I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. These people who had heard Jesus teach, many of them who had seen his miracles, some of them perhaps who had family members or friends or neighbors who had benefited from his miracles, these people, some of whom had been in the crowd that laid out their cloaks for the donkey to walk on as Jesus came into Jerusalem just a few days before, These people now sneered at him, verse 7. They mocked him, verse 8. Imagine those medieval scenes that maybe you've seen in the movies where the criminal is being carted in or being dragged in to the market square and the crowds are there waiting to see him be tortured and executed and they're in a frenzy. They're spitting at him maybe throwing vegetables at him, kicking him when he falls down, chanting all sorts of things. In this case, chanting, crucify, crucify, like a ball game. Just enjoying it all with hatred and enmity. This is the kind of scene that happened, that unfolded that day in Jerusalem. The people turned against him. The same people about Jesus, whom Jesus had just said, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks. These people that Jesus had so much compassion on are now cheering at his death like a sporting event in the arena. And then there were the leaders, verse 12, the bulls of Bashan who encircled him. Look at these men. You have Pilate in his pressed white Roman linens with a wreath on his head and his clean-shaven face. Then you have Herod with his mock crown trying to pretend that he's the king of the Jews and his purple robes, one of which he lent out to Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest in his high priestly garments, royal blue robes, a fine turban on his head, a breastplate with all sorts of precious jewels in it hanging across his chest. Pharisees with Bible verses taped on their foreheads. All of these people, each of them having grown rich on the backs of the people, each of them desperate to keep his position and willing to stir up the crowds and crucify a man to do so. Now, We're not all that unlike them, are we? We get caught up in the moment. We do what's best for number one. 
And when we look with the spiritual eyes of our heart, we can see our own faces in the crowd if we're honest. We sung about it this morning. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We, we spiritually build ourselves up and look back at these people and these leaders and say, what terrible people. But we are just like them, made of the same stuff as them. And so Caiaphas and the Pharisees say, it's not lawful for us to execute a man. I mean, we want him dead, but we can't do it. And they pass him off to Herod. And Herod says, well, this is none of my business. And he sends him on to Pilate. And Pilate says, well, you can do with him what you want, but I'm washing my hands of this. And so they all get what they want without actually getting their hands dirty. And Jesus is forsaken by his enemies, handed over by a bunch of people who knew that he wasn't guilty of anything and who just wanted to protect themselves. Handed over to a crowd who had no clue why he was being crucified, but just wanted in on the fun. And handed over eventually to the grunt workers, the Roman soldiers, who did the dirty business of verses 14 through 17. What happens to a person when he is executed by crucifixion? Well, in this case, first of all, they nail his hands and feet, verse 16, to a cross of wood. That's significant in and of itself. This is not lethal injection where you die painlessly. This is not beheading or the firing squad where you die immediately. These are rusty nails, probably the size of tent pegs. Four of them pounded blow after blow after blow intentionally to drag out the pain and make it worse and make you die more slowly. And so they pierce through the skin and then they pierce through the muscle and then they go in between those delicate little bones that are inside your hands and your feet and the tops of them eventually slam down against it all and you're stuck there. And then they lift the cross up and let the man hang there in order to suffocate in his own bodily fluid. Hang there until his chest cavity is so stretched out and his blood is so thick that breathing becomes almost impossible. And in order to get a single breath, he has to pull on the nails with his hands and push on the nails with his feet to pull his chest up just to get a single breath. And that explains why in verse 15, Jesus would say his strength was dried up like a potsherd. Those little orange-colored clay pots that you put your plants in in the summertime you ever feel those they're rough and dry and he's saying i'm dried up like that he was becoming dehydrated his tongue was cleaving verse 15 to his jaws no wonder he was thirsty it also explains as we think about him hanging there why in verse 14 all of his bones would be out of joint Imagine hanging there all day. For Jesus, it was just a few hours. But imagine hanging there with all the weight of your body suspended on the strength of your wrists and your elbows and your shoulders. Everything would be stretching out to its limit. Again, picture those medieval movies where you see the person put on the rack and stretched from end to end. That's what they were doing to Jesus, only... 
The mercy of those racks in medieval England was that they stretched you from end to end in just a minute or two. For Jesus, this torture lasted for three hours. His body stretched to his limits so that he can say in verse 17, I can count all my bones. Probably what is meant there is that his body was so stretched out that a person could stand at a distance and count every single rib in his rib cage because he was so emaciated and so stretched apart. Eventually, under all that pressure, verse 14, the heart might simply burst. The blood would get thick because the bodily fluid wasn't mixing like it was supposed to, and the heart would have to pump and pump and pump and pump just to get enough oxygen to the rest of the body to survive, and eventually the heart might just blow and melt like wax within a person's chest. So Jesus, very obviously, most obviously of all, was forsaken by his enemies tortured by his enemies. But then even more agonizingly, I think, Jesus was also, secondly, forsaken by his friends. And that's here in Psalm 22 as well. He cries out to the Lord, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. There is none to help. Why not? Well, because as Mark 14 tells us, all the disciples forsook him and fled. All of them. Judas, of course, long before this, several hours before this, had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and then gone and hanged himself and lay broken open on the rocks beneath some tree on a hillside somewhere. Peter had followed Jesus secretly to the court of the high priest. And though he had followed him secretly, he had denied him publicly three times and he rushed out in tears the disciple whom Jesus loved John the one that you would expect most to have been there was there but he stood the whole time at a distance didn't venture to come close to help Jesus comfort Jesus encourage Jesus he stayed a distance and the other nine of course disappeared altogether we never hear about them again until after the resurrection He was forsaken by his enemies, and that was bad enough, but then to be forsaken by his friends, by the people who would have been in this room, in this service. And again, we may fault them, but we have to ask ourselves, how often have I, when the pressure has been on, when the sale was at stake, when my popularity in the office might wane, when I just felt too tired to really put any effort into this, how often have I forsaken Jesus? forgotten Jesus, kept my head low, and failed to speak on behalf of Jesus. All of us. All of us have done it. All of us are just like these men, loved by Jesus and yet so often turning our backs on him, so often denying him with our actions and sometimes even with our words. And so when Jesus was in his darkest moment, when he needed comfort and encouragement the most, All forsook him and fled, and there was none to help. So Jesus was forsaken by his enemies. Jesus was forsaken by people like us, his friends. But worse than those, much worse. Thirdly, Jesus was forsaken, verse 1, by his own father. Forsaken by his own father. That's what verse 1 says, isn't it? Didn't Jesus quote these very words? As he hang on the cross, hung on the cross, my God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? It would be understandable that his enemies forsook him. Jesus says, I know what's in a man. So he understood that his friends forsook him. But God, why have you forsaken me? I'm your son. Now, this is not hyperbole. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was pointing people to Psalm 22, but he was also speaking honestly to his father. The reason why Psalm 22 says what it says is because that's what Jesus was going to need to say to his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not exaggerating for effect here. He's not mistaken. It's not that he just felt that God had forsaken him, but that wasn't really true. No, Jesus was God. He knew what was happening here. God, you've forsaken me. Literally forsaken me. And we see that as we read on in the psalm, don't we? God did not answer his prayer for deliverance. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cried by day, but you do not answer. And by night... But I have no rest. That really happened. Jesus is not exaggerating. He cried out to the Lord and got no answer. God did not come to the rescue. God did not send 12 legions of angels to help him. God did not even come to comfort him in the midst of his suffering. God didn't even speak a word of consolation to him. Not even a knowing glance in his direction. The heavens were completely shut and silent for those three hours. And Jesus was left alone, all alone, to die by himself. We were just singing it, weren't we? How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Why did God turn his face away? Not because he couldn't bear to see what was happening, but because... He had forsaken His Son. He had turned away completely from His Son and would not answer His cries for help. During those three hours of agony, not even a glance in His direction, Jesus amazingly and literally forsaken by His Father. So now the question becomes then, why? Why would God, why would a good God forsake Someone who's crying for help. Why would God forsake His own Son when He cries for help? Now, it's not the nature of prophecy to tell us everything that we want to know. And this is certainly true in Psalm 22. We're not given a straightforward answer to this question, why, here in this verse. Why have you forsaken me? There's no answer in Psalm 22. But if we turn to other prophecies and other portions of Scripture, we can begin to piece together some conclusions. Why didn't God come that day and help Jesus? Why didn't He answer His Son's prayers? Let me give you a couple of places that you could look. Isaiah 53, 5, another prophecy about Jesus says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says the same thing. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
Why didn't God rescue his son that day? Why did God turn away from his son and not hear his cries, not even glance in his direction? Why have you forsaken me? Because if God had not forsaken Jesus, we would still be in our sins. If God had sent 12 legions of angels to take him down from the cross, if God had come and taken him down himself, if God had come and in a word wiped out all the crowds and all the leaders and all the Roman soldiers and brought his son down from the cross, we would still be in our sins, wouldn't we? God had to forsake his son. Now someone says, well, Okay, God had to let him die, of course. But why couldn't God have at least come and comforted him? Couldn't have God at least answered from heaven and said, I know what you're going through and it'll be over soon. I'm with you. I'm on your side. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Couldn't God have at least done that? Why did God have to completely ignore him? Why did the heavens have to remain silent? Why couldn't God even glance in his direction? Why not even a word from his father of comfort? The answer again is in 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says Jesus literally became sin on our behalf. He became sin. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, he was not simply an example of what happens to sinners. He was an example of what happens to sinners, but that's not all. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross, it was not simply that he was paying for sins. That is true, wonderfully true. That's the reason why he died. But that's not all that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. It doesn't simply say he paid for our sins. It says he literally became sin. Jesus, in those moments, literally became the sinner. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus literally became the sinful one. He became the ugly one. He became, verse 6, a worm and not a man. You ever read that verse and realize that this is a prophecy of Jesus and say to yourself, how can Jesus say I'm a worm and not a man? I mean, if anything, he would say I'm God in addition to being man. How can he say I'm a worm and not a man? What does he mean? Well, he's referring to the fact that he literally became sin. He literally became the evil thing that God had to punish in God's eyes, Habakkuk 1.13, are too pure to look upon evil. Because Jesus literally became sin, God could not look at him. To do so would have been a breach of his holiness. God could not comfort him. God could not console him. God could not rescue him. Because God cannot comfort sin. And God cannot console sin. And God cannot encourage sin. And he cannot rescue sin. And Jesus literally became sin. So God had to crush him. That's all God can do with sin, is crush sin. That's why he didn't help his son. Because he literally became sin. Had God withheld just an ounce of his wrath, in other words, had God consoled Jesus, had God comforted Jesus, had God offered him a sympathetic glance, then God's justice against sin would have fallen to the ground. He would have broken his own word that he doesn't even look upon sin. His holiness would have been called into question and our sins would not have been fully atoned for. Not just that Jesus died, but that he was totally forsaken as he died. That's what it took for our sins to be atoned for. For our sins to be fully paid, 
4. Jesus had to undergo everything that an unforgiven sinner will undergo. Everything. If you're here this morning and you have not been forgiven by God and you die today without trusting Jesus, then you will go to hell and you will have no help from on high. You will cry by day and by night, but there will be no answer. You will ask God to put a cool drop of water on your tongue and He won't do it. You'll wish for comfort and there will be none. You'll hope for consolation and there will be none. You'll cry for deliverance and there will certainly be none. There won't even be a glance of encouragement in your direction. That's what sinners deserve. And for our sins to be fully atoned for, God couldn't just put Jesus on the cross and then play nice with Him. He had to undergo everything that we have earned. Now thank God that because Jesus is not a mere man but is God Himself, He could absorb everything that we have earned in those three hours on the cross and those three days in the tomb. What would take us an eternity to pay for, He was able to cover in three days. But until He did, until the payment was full, there could be no help from above. There could be no answer to His cries. There could only be full out wrath from a God whose eyes are too pure to approve evil. Has it ever occurred to you when you read about the crucifixion of Jesus, you read how God forsook Him, has it ever occurred to you that that's what you deserve? And that's what I deserve? We read it and we say, oh, what a a horrible thing for Jesus to undergo. But sometimes we forget to say, that's what I deserve. That is what I have earned. God's full out unmitigated wrath so that if God were to nail you or to nail me to a cross and leave us hanging there for eternity with no help and no comforter and no encouragement, no drop of water for our tongue, not even a glance in our direction, completely, utterly forsaken as Jesus was, we would be getting only what we deserve. That is why God did not and would not and could not help His son. Jesus had to drink down the full cup of God's wrath so that we don't have to drink any of the cup of God's wrath. Consider what happened that day at the cross. The Father hid his face from Jesus so that in verse 24, the Father would not have to hide his face from us. You see that? He hasn't hidden his face from the afflicted. Why? Why hasn't he hidden his face from us? Because he hid his face from his son. The father ignored the cries of his only begotten son. So that, again, verse 24, he can hear your cries. When he cried to him for help, he heard. Why does God hear us, undeserving as we are? He hears us because he chose not to hear him. On the cross. Matthew Henry, the medieval or the Puritan commentator, put it like this His bones were put out of joint, verse 14, that he might put the whole creation back into joint again and might make our broken bones to rejoice. Our Lord Jesus was stripped of his clothes, verse 18, that he might clothe us with the robe of righteousness and that the shame of our nakedness might not appear. 
How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He'd forsake His only Son. That He'd ignore His cries. That He would turn His face away. That He would leave Him utterly alone in order to make a wretch His treasure. And how deep the Son's love for us. Are you utterly amazed that the Son of God would willingly undergo such humiliation and such agony for you? That He would be spat upon and stripped naked and mocked and abandoned by His friends and nailed to a cross for you? That He would undergo the tearing of His flesh and the pulling apart of His joints and the dehydration and the suffocating in His own bodily fluid and the bursting of His very heart for you? And to make all that pale in comparison, are you utterly amazed that Jesus would willingly put himself under the curse of God for you? That he would willingly go to the place where he knew that God would utterly forsake him for you? Are you utterly amazed that he would endure the agony of total separation from God for you? Amazing grace, isn't it? saved a wretch like me. Now let me ask, can anyone, can anyone here this morning continue to resist this Jesus? If you're here and you're resisting Him, how can you? Someone who's loved you this much, someone who risked everything and gave everything for your soul, If you resist Him, you do so at the risk of that soul. You do so at the pain of death and with the prospect of an eternity of enduring the agonies that Jesus endured in this psalm. Either Jesus was forsaken for you and you trust in Him completely or you will be the one who is utterly forsaken by God. Can anyone here still convince yourself that, well, I'm a pretty good religious person and I go to church and so I'm sure everything is going to be okay with me? Can you convince yourself when we have the evidence here in Psalm 22 about how serious God is about sin? Do we really think that God would hang Jesus on a cross and let him die there in agony and utterly forsake him so that he didn't even look at him in those hours on the cross? Do we really think God would do that? to sin and then just wink at ours? Can anyone convince yourself or be convinced by others that all the other world religions are somehow on equal footing with this gospel of Jesus Christ after what we've heard this morning? Did Muhammad ever die in infamy for any of us? Did any of the Buddhas undergo the curse of God for us? No. When those men underwent the curse of God, they underwent the curse of God for their own sins and they burn in hell right now. And yet, here we have a Jesus who is forsaken not for our sin, not for his own sins, but for our sins. And can we turn our backs on him and say all roads lead to the same place? What about those who may be here? Some of you young people, perhaps perhaps some who aren't so young, who... Or saying to yourself, yes, I believe everything that you've said. I know it's true. And someday I will decide for Jesus. Someday I will put my trust in him. Someday I'll really listen on Sunday mornings. And someday I will really be saved. 
I believe Jesus was forsaken for me, but I'm not ready quite yet to commit to him. Not only is today the day kids and teenagers and adults, today is the only day you have, but you need to ask yourself if you're delaying on entrusting yourself to Jesus, how, how can I look him in the eyes and tell him after all he's done for me that I'm going to withhold my allegiance for one more minute? How? How can we not fall at his feet today? Whoever you are, would you not this very minute say to Jesus with the songwriter, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love, I know it's true, and it's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. Christian, unbeliever, would you not say that to him today? Father, thank you for your son, Thank you that you had enough love for us and self-control within yourself not to answer his cries. Thank you that Jesus had enough love and enough self-control to go to the place where he knew you wouldn't be able to answer his cries. Thank you that we are forgiven because he was forsaken. We pray that you would lead those here today who have not been forgiven to come and kneel in complete and utter trust at the feet of this Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.